What a prayer. Wow. So just to warn you, we are going to break into groups in a little while. So I'm warning you now so you can get nervous about it. Um, but I don't know. I thought, ah, do I warn people that they're going to be nervous for the whole time when I'm talking, or do I just surprise them afterward? And I thought, I would not want to be surprised. So you can think about it. But what we're going to do is, um, as we've been doing, we're just trying to we're trying to get away from just coming to church and it's, you know, just hear a, hear a sermon and listen to some worship, which is awesome. Those things are great. But we also want to fellowship. We want to interact with one another. We feel like that's so important, such a big part of the church experience. Um, so we're going to do that, not yet, but after I talk, um, we'll break into groups of four to six and the chairs disconnect and, you know, just kind of gather with whoever is around you. Um, and I'll float around. So if you have questions, you can you can talk to me about this series that we're ending today called The Paradigm Shift. Uh, so this is <clears throat> message number eight in this uh, wonderful series that we've been doing. Uh, I've just been kind of coming up every week and just asking a lot of questions um, just about the way we do things, the way Wren Church does things and have done things for many, many years, but also just kind of the common ways that churches in the West function, the way they do things. Uh, so we're, we're just questioning those things. I think it's good to question. Um, I think it's, uh, it's part of seeking truth to question things as long as your heart is in the right place you know I think sometimes people are questioning things like people question Jesus right but their motive was wrong you know they were questioning to not with a, a spirit of wanting to find the truth but um, kind of the opposite of that uh, so I think questioning can be a wonderful thing if our heart behind it is to to know the truth and what is the truth? What is God's design for his, for his church? How, how does he want us to function as a people? Those are the questions we've been asking. So we've looked at a lot of different ideas. I know it's been a lot in the last seven weeks. I, I confess that maybe I, I put too much on the community to process. You know, I've been thinking about these things for Probably a month into the pandemic, I started thinking about a lot of these things. So it was like two years of accumulated thought that I just uh, dumped on everybody in, in a few weeks. So uh, anyways, but you guys are good. You guys can, I think you can handle it. Uh, I mean, some have been really excited. Some have been completely overwhelmed by everything I've shared. Uh, so anyways, there's no turning back now. <laughs> But we've thought about some of the things we've thought about over the last seven weeks are, you know, this idea of the kind of the clergy laity system and just the great chasm between ministers and people, congregations. And we've kind of questioned that. Is that a New Testament concept? Um, we've talked a lot about body ministry, what we 
you know, the metaphor in scripture is the body, that one is the hand, one is the eye, one is the foot and all this. And we are the body of Christ together. So we, when we talk about body ministry, it's just this idea of everybody in the body playing their role, everybody ministering. This is what fellowship is really all about. It's not just drinking Kool-Aid and eating donuts, but fellowship is coming together and everybody is actually ministering to one another. Um, so are we doing that? That is God's design. We talked a little bit about the way churches spend their money. Uh, I won't go into that, but I'm very passionate about that. Uh, it's pretty common that 25% of the money goes toward church buildings. About 50% of the money goes toward staffing. Um, about 10 or 15% go toward programming. Uh, which is geared usually for the people who attend the church, and then maybe 5%, 10%, maybe more, maybe less, goes toward local and global mission. And so we've kind of thought about, is that, is that a good distribution of the finances, actually the billions of dollars that come in to the church, even just in this country? Um, is there a better way? What did the early church do? These are questions we've been asking. We've kind of questioned the idea of a church service dominated by one voice. And in Bren Church, that would be my voice, my big fat voice. Um, I talk a lot and I seem to take up most of the airspace. Is that a good thing? Is that God's design? Um, that's a question we've been asking. We've been thinking about this idea of everybody on mission. Um, as I confessed, probably for the last 20 years since uh, we started the church, I've come up with most of the mission ideas, you know, to impact the, the local community, the neighborhoods around, and then I pitch it to the church, cast the vision, and I rally everybody to get behind it. And you guys are really good at getting behind things and serving and okay. But is that really how God intended it to be? Or has God put burdens on your hearts? And are we as pastors supposed to just kind of get behind that resource, that equip that, kind of release you to do the things that God has put into your heart? So we've questioned those things and talked about those things. We've uh, talked a little bit about the big church versus the small church. Uh, you know, which one is better? What are the pros and cons of each? Can you really fulfill the one another's in a large setting? I, don't, I wouldn't say this is a large setting. You know, we're, this is a pretty small, intimate space, maybe 100 or so people. Um, so I think it's still small enough where we can have some really good interactions. But when a church becomes 300 or 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000, can, can, can the one another's really happen? Is fellowship possible in a large church? Why is it that God in his 
sovereignty has uh, seen fit to make most churches under 100. Uh, the average church is uh, like 80 to 100 people. And in the first three centuries, most churches were small. They met in houses. So these are questions we've been asking. And we've been talking about space as well. Like, what are the kinds of spaces? What are the best spaces for churches to meet in? Is it this, uh, you know, large, um, cavernous cathedral, you know, that's echoey uh, with the minister way up, far away on the stage or on the altar and wooden pews bolted to the ground? Is that, is that God's idea? I don't know. You know, I mean, there. I know the purposes behind some of the architecture was to create a sense of transcendence um, and awe. And art and architecture can can do that. And maybe there's a purpose in that. And maybe God did lead certain people to do that. But is that the best? Um, again, most of the uh, early church gatherings were in houses, were in small, intimate spaces. Uh, so space matters, right? It matters a lot. Um, you know, there are some spaces you come into, aside from church, just some spaces, you could call them third spaces maybe, but there are some spaces you come into and they are not conducive for interaction at all. Uh, I mean, we went to the movie theater not too long ago and it was not conducive for interaction. In fact, the theater we went to uh, we had the, these, you know, how they do them now with the big recliner seats and everything, and you just lean back in your seat, and now you don't even have to talk to the person that needs to scoot by you to go to the bathroom. You just continue in your reclined position, and you just kind of look at them as they go by. And maybe nod, or maybe just keep eating your candy. I mean, it's, yeah. Um, so that kind of space, that kind of setup is not conducive for interaction. It's just a spectating uh, space. So how should churches be set up? How should church spaces uh, be designed? To It always goes back to the mission, right? Well, what's the mission? You know, at a movie, what's the, what's the, what's the uh, mission? What's the goal of the theater? It's to experience the movie. It's not to interact with people. I don't want to talk to people. When I'm, I don't want people talking around me. I don't want people talking to me. I, I just want to shut in and close in and watch the, the, the movie experience, right? I want to experience that. So it's actually perfectly designed for that. But in a church... If the design is to fulfill the one another's to Corinthians 14, to edify one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another, then how should the space be designed? Uh, that's another thing that we thought about and questioned. So I know all this, it's a lot. It's a lot to, to process. It's a lot to think about. As I've said many times, I don't have all the answers. I have all the questions. That's what I, I'm coming up with, all the questions. And I'm just thinking these things through and bringing you along in the journey. Uh, that in hopes 
uh, our collective wisdom and questioning would result in something fresh and something new and something that uh, God is pleased in. So anyways, that's my little intro. That's a summary of everything we've been talking about. But what I want to talk about today, what I want to highlight today really is the underlying idea that has been thread throughout this entire series that ordinary believers can turn the world upside down. Ordinary believers can turn the world upside down and have from the first century. I'm convinced that one of the greatest deceptions or delusions amongst God's people is this lie that only ministers can do certain things. And if we believe certain things are off limits to us as ordinary believers, then we won't attempt them, right? If we believe that only pastors are qualified to do certain things, then we will be paralyzed. We will nestle into our mediocrity. And that's kind of what the story of Joshua and Caleb and the ten spies is, is all about. I won't get too deep into that, but you might remember that story uh, from childhood, right? You know, the, the spies go into the land and to, to scope it out, to see, uh, you know, what it's like. And they come up against these great giants that are there and fortified cities and superior weapons. And, but they see that the land is good and filled with uh, abundance and it's a land of milk and honey. And so they uh, are t- kind of talking about this and Joshua and Caleb are like, let's do it. Yeah, God is with us. We will swallow them up. Uh, and they have this confidence. They have this trust in God. But the ten spies were, were not so uh, full of faith. Um, they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. They were defeated before they even started, right? Their whole way of thinking. A few verses later, this is Numbers 13. It says, we saw the Nephilim, these giants, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Hmm. How do you view yourself as an ordinary believer, as a Christian? Are you inferior? Are you capable? Are you powerful? Are you weak? What can you do in Christ? What do you think you can do? Do you see yourself as a grasshopper? Well, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. Because we've been taught... I think all of us in different ways, we've been taught that ministers are more important and more qualified and more 
everything, you know, more special, more anointed than the average Christian. And this has been communicated in many ways. It's been reinforced to us in so many different ways. For example, uh, the minister is up front above as right now. I'm up, I'm elevated. And of course, there's practical reasons so you can see me and all that so the cameras can. But it kind of speaks something. These things matter. These things talk to us. They send messages to us that ministers have something more than us that we don't have. They're on stage. I'm not. Ministers do most of the ministering in most churches. That sends a message. Well, maybe it's because they, you know, they're more qualified. They should be doing more of the ministry. How about the special garb that uh, ministers wear, like the hoodie? Um, right? This is the special garb at Wren that we wear, that the ministers wear. And some of you I see have hoodies, Rudy, um, trying to become like a pastor, huh? Yeah, I get it. I get it. But no, in, in, I mean, so the collar, the, uh, the robes that people wear, um, the, ah, the giant, I don't even know what those things are, the, the cone head things. Um, wow. But, you know, these, the, the way that the minister dresses sets them apart, sets them above. <gasps> I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, so... You know, I knew when the priest came in, you knew it's like this wasn't like Joe, you know, Joe the barber. I mean, this was like, whoa, the holy man with the bell and the incense and the whole thing. You're like, oh, whoa, you know, swoon. But what is all that? All right. It speaks a message. You know, if the minute if the priest when I was a kid was sick. Uh, and my dad went to step in, to, it would be like, what are you doing? You can't do that. You don't even know what you're doing. You, you can't, you're not allowed to do that, would be the, the feeling that we would all have. Because pastors, ministers, priests seem to be the only uh, kind of sanctioned ones to perform weddings. Funerals, even baptisms. Now, I know not in every church. It's a little different in every church, but communion. And then there's the, just in some churches the detailed rituals that, I mean, what are they even doing? I had no idea what the priest was doing. He came in and he did like 452 little tiny things from start to finish that all happened in 31 minutes. And I mean, nobody could do all those things. Nobody could figure it out. It was just very detailed ritual that only he was qualified to do. And then there's the confessional booth we could talk about. You, know, you got to confess your sins to the priest, the minister. Uh, only certain ones, only, only ministers can interpret the Bible. Now, as Protestants, we, we you know, boast that we don't believe that anymore, but we kind of do. 
still believe that. I know that was a problem in the Catholic Church, right, for many, many years before the Reformation, that, that, that you know, the priests, uh, you know, were the only ones that read the word, really, and had the word. And then the printing press came and the Reformation, just the whole thing, Bible got in the hands of the people. But still, even to this day, sometimes the Protestants act like, oh, the minister, you know, he can interpret or she can interpret the scriptures. But ordinary people cannot. Preachers have the most important job. I've heard this so many times. You know, it's more important than the president. It's more important than whatever. And it's like, it's just like the preacher is the most important job you could do on the planet. What? Where is that in the New Testament? It's not even a biblical concept. <laughs> I've been in some churches where Again, these things speak. Church of like 1,500, 2,000, up on the high stage. I mean, our stage is like 14 inches, I think. You'll notice it's 12 inches on one side and 14 on the other. <laughs> it, it is, really. Well, I'm not slanted, but the floor is. Um, but, you know, so high stage, and then the pastors are up on the stage sitting in these giant chairs that look like king's throne chairs. Now, I don't know, as a young Christian, I went to that church a couple times and just, whoa, the minister. I wouldn't dare sit in that chair. But these things speak to us. You know, the pulpits, have you been in the congregational, congregational churches where or other kinds of churches where the, the pulpit is, it's a stair, stairway up to this little, um, you know, little bubble that's up in the, it, I mean, we couldn't even do it in here. The ceilings aren't high enough. you got to <laughs> climb up, and then there's this, the pulpit is way up in the sky. Now, I know that probably the symbolism of it was theologically sound, that, well, the word of God is over us, and it's like the word comes from above, or I don't know what, you know, but... It still speaks to the average Christian. We're looking at this minister in flowing garb, you know, who's like 14 feet above us, yelling at us. It sends a message that he's more powerful than us. He's qualified in some kind of special, mysterious way. And then there's the special education that ministers have that is a relatively new concept, really, that you need to be uh, Bible school trained or seminary trained, and you need to have all this, you know, like we're uh, doctors or lawyers or something. That I went to Bible school. There's really no mysterious thing that they teach us. In fact, most of what I do in ministry, they forgot to teach me. <laughs> I mean, it was basically like a four-year-long Bible study, okay? You know, just study the Bible and learn how to pray, which really all of us can do. But then there's ordination, you know, that special human uh, blessing, you know, oh, you are the ordained one. You are qualified. You are commissioned. You are set apart. Others aren't, but you are to do the work of the ministry. 
Now I'm making fun of it a little bit, but I'm making fun of it because it's not a biblical idea. It's, it's not in the New Testament at all. Now, yes, we are set apart. Some, some are called to be elders or teachers or some are called to be pastors or some may be called to be worship leaders or to do different kinds. Of, we all do different roles in the body of Christ. But every one of us is called to minister. Every one of us. How about all the titles? Pastor, reverend. I get mail sometimes, Reverend Scott Axman. I was talking to, I was trying to change my car insurance, and I somehow, I don't even know how they know I'm a reverend. I mean, the lady was so sweet. This little southern lady was just kept on, oh, reverend. You know, just kept calling me reverend. And I had to, I got to confess, I kind of liked it. I was like, (laughs) just made me feel important. She was so respectful. Bishop, father, I've had people call me father. Okay, just confused, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, you know. Oh, father, what time is your mass? But didn't Jesus tell us not to do that? Don't, you know, let people call you rabbi and father and give you all these titles. And didn't he warn a lot about you know, wanting the place of honor uh, at the banquet and all this. Like, we're not, it's not supposed to be like that. We're servants. That's what Paul said often, right? You know, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Once in a while, he would use the word apostle. But usually it was just servant because that's what we are. We're a community of servants. We're a community of ministers that are all playing different roles. I could keep going. How about the, the, the pastor's name on the church sign out, outside the church? You are not going to see that at Wren Church. Can you imagine that? Renaissance Church, Reverend Scott Axtman. What is that? It just sends a message that the pastor is of supreme importance. And everyone else is not. Because that's kind of how we take it, right? It's not that we're saying that pastors are more special or ministers or ordained ministers are more special. But it kind of communicates that. And so in our little brains, we think, well, okay, I'm, I'm not called to do that. I, I, don't, I can't do that. I'm not ordained to perform ministerial duties the way they are. But my question is this, says who? Says who? Not the word of God. I challenge you to do a study. Just walk through the the New Testament and see what God says about the ordinary believer. And try to find something that you can't do. You won't see it. You will see that as an ordinary follower of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit upon your life, you can do just about anything. Now, again, we have different roles, and not everybody's gifted in certain things. You know, 
we understand that. But my point today is I want to elevate you. I'm not trying to tear down ministers. I'm a minister. You know, we are, we're called to honor pastors and those who teach and preach and do that work. So I'm not trying to be dishonoring in any way, being a little funny, but just trying to bring down the, uh, the worship of pastors and elevate the laity. This chasm is not from God. This division, this chasm of between the clergy and the people. See, I think it's a, it's a delusion of the enemy. Th- think about a church of 500 people, for example. If you could, as Satan, if you could deceive the church into thinking that the minister was the only one qualified to do certain things, you'd have 499 people who are inactive and feel inferior and feel paralyzed and feel like they're just not good enough or anointed enough or qualified enough or called enough or sanctioned or whatever. See, it's, it's a dangerous church to hell when every single member in the church feels that they have the Holy Spirit and they are called by God to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. That's a dangerous church. I want to be a dangerous church. (laughs) So what does God say about ordinary believers? I'll just run through a few things. Acts chapter 2. Remember when the Holy Spirit fell on 120 people in the upper room? It was on everyone, wasn't it? It was on the men and it was on the women. It was on the young and it was on the old. It was on the shy ones and the talkative ones. It was on the highly gifted ones and the ones that weren't so gifted. It was on the educated and the uneducated. The Holy Spirit fell on everyone and they all spoke and proclaimed the goodness of God. How about Acts 4? Remember the story where uh, Peter and John heal the man at the gate beautiful, right? And then they get in trouble for it because the religious authorities didn't like that kind of, I don't know why they didn't like that, but they were jealous or whatever the issue was. And so they're basically in front of this council and they're speaking boldly. And it says this, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The NIV Bible puts it this way, ordinary and unschooled. They were ordinary. Those three words just stuck out at at me this week. They were ordinary. They were ordinary and unschooled. They were fishermen. They were ordinary, unschooled. They weren't highly trained. They didn't go through all the hoops that the religious Pharisees had gone through. They were ordinary, unschooled believers. And they turned the world upside down. 
And we could talk about Stephen. We could talk about Dorcas. We could talk, talk about Apollos. Who I'm just so excited to meet Apollos in eternity. Like, what was this guy? It seemed like he didn't really fully know certain things, right, about, about the kingdom. But he was just, like, doing it. I'm going there. I'm going there. He was, like, just uh, a little raw, a little barbaric in his approach maybe but he was having an effect and then Aquila and Priscilla come along more lay people come along and kind of shape him and disciple him and fine-tune him but is any of this a surprise that ordinary believers can do great things because Jesus said if you believe in me not if you're a minister, not if you're a prophet, not if you're called to be an apostle, but if you believe in me, streams of living water will flow out from your inmost being. That's every one of us. <clears throat> I mean, there are so many hundreds of verses we could talk about. I mean, Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who? Just the apostles? Just the disciples? You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Who? All of us. That's what this is all about. We, we no longer live in the age where you have, you know, the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies. No. We are all priests. We are all ministers. We are all filled with the Holy Spirit. We are all empowered. We are all commissioned by God to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, this whole dichotomy, this, it, it, it's, so, it's so destructive, really. You know, I mean, even in churches, you know, sometimes you have the evangelism team. That's dumb. That is just wrong. Or like just certain people are ministers. Certain people are missionaries. Listen, if you are filled with the Spirit today, you're a missionary where God has placed you. You are. Oh, I'm not a missionary. I'm just an ordinary Christian. What is an ordinary Christian? An ordinary Christian is a missionary. An ordinary Christian is a preacher. Not in the sense of like, coming up in public speaking to a crowd, but we are all called to communicate, to shine like stars in our world. All of us. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'll give you a few others of my favorite verse. I think I read it last week. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. First Peter. Uh, no, this is not First Peter two. No, it is First Peter two. You, you that was Second Corinthians nine eight. First Peter two. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, just walk through the New Testament. Who are these verses for? They're not for pastors. They are for pastors, but they're for everyone. 
They're not just for the, the New Testament Christians, the apostles, the special breed in the first century that were like superstar Christians. It's for us. It's you. It's me. 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Romans 8 talks about the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you as a follower of Jesus. Think about that. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells within you as an ordinary follower of Jesus. Well, I'm just a Christian. Well, yeah, you're a Christian that has the Holy Spirit within you, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. None of this like, oh, I'm just, I don't know, I don't know, I can't preach, I'm just trying to, you know, do my job at work and just, you know, be a good person. No, where is that? That is not how the Bible in the New Testament describes you. You're called to more. You have God's spirit. You have this treasure in earthen vessel. Listen, ministers do not have a bigger Holy Spirit than you. <laughs> My Holy Spirit's giant. What kind of Holy Spirit do you have? You got a tiny Holy Spirit because you're an ordinary Christian. No, that is ridiculous. That is such bad theology. There's one Holy Spirit and he dwells in us as God's people. My point is that God has chosen ordinary unschooled believers to turn the world upside down. He's chosen the weak. He's chosen the poor. He's chosen old and young men and women, shepherds and fishermen, tax collectors and former prostitutes. He's chosen people with criminal records and people who never got past the eighth grade. God will do great exploits through anyone who will devote themselves to God. So my question is, if God has endowed each of us with his grace, you have everything you need. To be a leader, to be a missionary, to have an impact in your world, to lead people to Christ, to minister. Like I definitely prepare my heart and I can come and I can minister to the people and hopefully encourage you and refresh you in some way. But, and I have a gift of speaking, but I've also done it for a long time, 30 plus years. So hopefully I'm getting a little bit better <laughs> at this point. But probably if I'm good at all, it's because I've done it so many times. But you can, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if you prepare your heart, you can come into a gathering and you can encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm telling you, that's a dangerous church. 
A church where only one man comes and qualified one comes and ministers to all the people, everybody just spectates and takes it in. Okay, that's good. But imagine a church of 100 or 300 or 500 where everyone is coming in with a word burning on their heart, just something, that a song they want to give, something they want to share, something they want to give out to encourage, a prayer. I mean, how about Catherine's prayer this morning? Whoa, okay. That was worth more than my whole message. That's the kind of church we want to be, where everybody's coming and playing their part well. Well, I'll leave it there. I want to give you guys a little time. I don't know where the time went this morning. Is it really? How long did I talk for? Maybe it was Catherine's long prayer. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to take uh, at least 10 minutes. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna steal five minutes. If you have little kids that are crazy downstairs, you might want to slip out and get them at least in five minutes. But for the rest of us, we're going to take... The next 10 minutes, 15, whatever you guys want to do, and just break into groups of four to six. And I just want you to uh, just talk about really anything that I talked about today or anything in the previous seven weeks. Just kind of talk a little bit about the paradigm shift. If you're brand new with us, it's fine. Just then ask questions and just say, yeah, I'm new. And like, you know, what is this all about? What have you learned? So go ahead and do that. Mess the place up. Turn over the chairs. Um, unhinge him and, and talk for like 10 or 15. Thanks for listening, guys.